0: Hi and welcome to displaced the podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox
1: Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I am Grant Gordon, and we are your co-host. Today on the show, we are talking with Vali Nasser. Vali is the Dean of the John Hopkins School of Advanced and International Studies, also known as SIS, and the author of numerous books on the Middle East and US foreign policy. He's served in the State Department as the senior advisor under the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, Richard Holbrook, and really brings a wealth of insight and practical experience on how to think about not only Middle East politics, but foreign policy and foreign policy that responds. To conflict and crises.
0: So, I first met Valley just over 10 years ago, just before he was about to join the State Department as an advisor to Richard Holbrooke. And we talked then about the war in Afghanistan, and he was incredibly insightful about why the whole strategy was failing and why we needed to think more about diplomacy and the role of politics in solving that crisis. And this is an episode where we really look back over the last 10 years and more at the Afghanistan and, and Pakistan conflict and think about lessons that are relevant both to
1: Afghanistan and Pakistan today, but also about how you end wars generally. And this is something that we really dive into in this episode, which is when you're trying to make peace and, and war, who do you need to be talking with? And we don't necessarily and only talk about that abstractly, but we dive into uh, Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban, as well as discuss Pakistani and regional politics. And this is really an interesting episode because I think it's a great aerial overview of how to think through um, from a, you know, 360,000 feet overview, which is more than the 36,000 feet that normally people say, uh, around Afghanistan, Pakistan, and this region.
0: We're going to look at the lessons from Afghanistan right from the Bonn Agreement, which was when a new government in Afghanistan was created, about 30 different uh, factions and warlords were brought together in bond to try and agree the basis of a new government. And that was actually a critical moment in Afghanistan's history because that was meant to bring together a big tent of uh, actors, but it crucially left out the Taliban. And that set the stage for the failure to really engage in a political process of reconciliation um, throughout the, uh, the 2000s.
1: Valley, we want to start today um, thinking about Afghanistan really broadly. It has been the longest war in U.S. history that we have been engaged in. We have spent an estimated $1 trillion. There have been over 170,000 lives lost. And even the most conservative estimates at this point suggest that 4 million people have been displaced. Uh, And I want to get to just start and paint a picture Um, I was wondering if you could describe the situation and what you think the strategic objectives right now are for the United States in Afghanistan.
2: Well, starting with your last point, the strategic objective for the United States, at least since uh, the attacks of 9-11, has been to eradicate any terrorist threats from Afghanistan coming to the West and the United States and bring some kind of an order in Afghanistan where you could actually hand it off to a government who would say, okay, I'm going to control this territory. I can make sure that Al-Qaeda or some other organization cannot have a camp of their own, and that you can feel secure that nothing's gonna come from this territory towards you. So by and large, the only reason we care about Afghanistan is because the biggest terrorist attack on the United States was launched from Afghanistan, And so the strategic objective for the Bush administration, the Obama administration and now the Trump administration is how to basically end any kind of terrorism threat coming uh, from Afghanistan towards the United States.
0: But is that strategic objective still relevant now when that original threat has morphed and metastasized? Do we still have the same goal in Afghanistan or should we?
2: Well, we have the same goal. The problem is not the goal. The problem is that uh, we cannot attain that goal with the current strategy that we have. And and we tried under the Bush and Obama administration to actually defeat the Taliban. So the one, one way of achieving that strategic goal was just win the war, go in there, defeat everybody, put your flag in, uh, create a whole new government, what we did in post-World War Europe, for instance. We failed at that miserably. Uh, For varieties of reasons we can go into, you know, the the Taliban were undefeatable or that we could not put the amount of uh, resources and time and patience that's necessary to defeat someone like the Taliban. And therefore, we we put more troops, less troops, more money, less money. In the end, the Taliban were still sitting there. bit like what we're doing now, isn't it, though? Well, uh, absolutely. We're not trying to do the same thing with, with, with fewer troops. Uh, we at some points talked about, when I was at the State Department and Richard Holbrook was a special envoy for Afghanistan, he actually started from the premise that the Taliban are not defeatable. This is not something you can you can do on the battlefield. You have to find a way to a negotiating table. So don't think war, think of like something like what we did in Bosnia, for instance. You gotta get to a point where you can have a peace deal between the Taliban and the government, some kind of power sharing, but everybody agrees to put their guns down. Another example is Northern Ireland. I mean, how many years did the British try to defeat uh, the, the IRA militarily? In the end, it was it was a, it was a peace deal, a power-sharing deal, sponsored by the outside. We didn't want to do that because it's not an idea that that A, the American leaders thought they could get there, and B, it's not an idea they thought they could sell to the American public because it's thought of as you're talk going to talk to the terrorists, you're going to give in to the terrorist. So, so as a result, we're still chasing our tail in Afghanistan without, without much uh, success. And if you think back to those other situations that Richard Holbrook was
0: involved in, how did he combine, or how did the various forces combine military pressure with a political process? And can you say a little bit about the right sequencing
2: to do that combination? Well, uh, I don't think we did it right. If you looked at the other successful case, which is the war in the Balkans, Uh, the goal was diplomacy all along. We used military power in order to bring the different parties to the table. We gave weapons to Bosnians and the Croats so they could prove to the Serbs that the Serbs couldn't win. Then we began bombing or pressuring the Serbs so everybody had a motivation to come to the table. So the military element was, was merely a tool to strengthen diplomacy. In Afghanistan, we got it backwards. We really thought because of the surge in Iraq, where in two thousand six, two thousand seven we put a lot of troops in and the tide of war in Iraq changed, that the generals and the and the military men could just win this war militarily. And diplomacy was kind of an afterthought, or as I've argued, we we used tried to use diplomats merely to go around the world and get us more money and more troop commitments. But we didn't see. they not a very good at that, in my experience. They weren't good, very good at that, and and but the, the goal was never that we seriously, really were, were thinking about a peace process and and whether it's doable or not. I don't think we really uh, uh, tried it out. So so in that sense, the balance was not correct, and 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 you cannot have a correct balance if you don't actually put this plan of action on the table squarely. For yourself. So, if you're going to say, "I'm going to finish this politically," the end result in Afghanistan is not total surrender; it's some kind of a peace deal. You're never going to uh, uh, create the, the the right kind of order within your own organization to get there.
1: It gets at an interesting point, which is one of the fundamental questions of how wars uh, end. And when you look over the past 50 years, I think one of the interesting empirical observations is that you know, prior to the end of the Cold War, about 58% of civil wars ended in single-sided victory. Mm-hmm. And in the post-Cold War era, only about 13% of, uh, of wars of the same nature end in kind of unilateral victory. It's just something that you don't see these days. And I think one of the interesting implications is if you know that these are the kind of average outcomes in total for the ways that war end. what are the strategies that you take from the onset? Do you immediately, when deploying military force, know that the probability that this is going to land in victory is going to be so low that you then think about what the other strategic options and levers are? And you have to think about that from the beginning, right? It begs the question... Well, I mean, well that's
0: when we should have actually thought about it. When the Bonn Agreement was put in place, which essentially ended the war and created the new Afghan constitution, we could then have engaged the Taliban when we were at our peak in terms of strength. Um, Another time we could have done it, I think, was when the surge happened. But I think, as you said, the main view amongst the military and the various political leaders was let's clear and hold the territory and later maybe let's negotiate.
2: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, within within academia, there's a lot of theories and discussions about uh, looking back at history about where wars end. But but very little of this is actually brought into the policy making conversation. So I think let's say at the point of Bonn agreement or where Obama came into office and re- took another look at Afghanistan, nobody actually, w- w- you didn't send your staffers all to the libraries or to, to the universities to talk to people and say, you know, how did all these wars end? Let's look at the statistics <laughs> that you just mentioned. Right So so I think there was a bit, there was an original sin, if you would, within the bond agreement, which is we, we negotiate this big big agreement, but we left a very powerful important actor, two powerful, important actors out of the discussion. One was the Taliban, the other was Pakistan. So Pakistan was not really a player in the negotiations. It, 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 you, you immediately created revisionist powers. Uh, that, that had no vested interest in the, in the settlement, and he may have even looked at the settlement as a danger. So you come up with this idea that we're going to create a powerful, centralized, democratic Afghan government. And that is a mortal threat to Pakistan. Why would Pakistan want a powerful, strong Afghan government next door when 20% of its own population are Pashtuns and the Afghans don't recognize a common border with Pakistan and generally see the Pashtuns as one nation. So so to Pakistanis, this meant something completely different. I I would say part of the whole problem uh, post 9-11 is is when we sort of define conflicts in terms of terrorism, -terrorism, non-terrorism, it gives us a sense that you're either with us or against us, you're either on the right side or the wrong side everything gets reduced to, are you going to support the terrorists or not? And it's very easy for us to say, well, it's in Pakistan's interest not to support terrorists. In Iran's interest, is not to support terrorists. What we forget is that, is that the neighbors or other actors may look at these conflicts and not see terrorism as an important issue and see a host of other things as more important existential issues, right? So Pakistan looks at Afghanistan it's not worried so much about terrorism as it's worried about dismemberment, as it's worried about internal sectarian conflict, as it's worried about India creating a second base in Afghanistan. I mean, it's the whole sort of order of issues that, that on their sort of uh, priorities list comes way ahead of terrorism. And then we don't understand that why what is important to us is not important to them.
1: This gets it. So I want to take a step back and and think about the bone agreement and the kind of negotiated settlements um, and how then the lens of terrorism gets grafted on. I think the one of the crucial problems for putting together negotiated settlements is identifying who needs to be at the table, what are their strategic interests, and where's the political space that can get you to an outcome that is going to end a war and bring sufficient numbers along. And we know that negotiated settlements in general work, but that the increasing number of parties that you bring to the table generates the possibility for spoilers, for uh, challenging uh, multi-coalition politics to emerge, Mm -hmm. and to really stop processes. The problem when you then graft terrorism onto that is that you have an automatic vet for whether somebody can come to the table or not, irrespective of whether they're crucial to be at the table. And so it's not necessarily a useful filter. But thinking back to the bone agreement and and, uh, broader negotiated settlements, from your perspective, how do you think about which parties need to be at the table while also balancing the need to not make the table so big that you never get anywhere?
2: Well, you know, uh, I think the terrorism argument, at least the way we discussed in the United States, was largely a values argument. It was about good and evil. Whereas in reality, uh, um, you know, war and peace is really about a balance of power. It's not about whether your adversary or the competing forces are good or evil. Sometimes that, that becomes so important, you can't deal with them. But largely civil wars happen where there's no consensus about uh, distribution of power, or where one side thinks that he can get a larger share of power by use of force, right? Mm-hmm. And peace agreements happen when you actually have, have get a balance and distribution of power everybody can live with, right? So, so, so you need to have at the table the main the main contenders in a balance of power conversation, and those who have greatest ability to disturb it, right? So terrorism if you have a group of terrorists that are 50 people or, or are stateless like the Al-Qaeda, uh, they may they don't deserve a seat at the table. But there's a big difference if you're talking about the Taliban or Hezbollah or or the Tamil Tigers in, in Sri Lanka, where these groups that use violence for political lands, but actually are in control of large areas of the territory and lord over large portions of the population and therefore speak for a kind of a balance of power debate and ultimately are part of the balance of power negotiation. So, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, there's no way in which not to have the Taliban at the table. I mean, you know, this is it's kind of like having a peace treaty with yourself. Uh, Sounds like
1: an easy peace treaty to make. It's <laughs> going
2: to be an easy peace treaty. So, so you could come up with a nice constitution in Bonn. You could choose your own president. You could do all of these things. Now, this would only have worked if that central government could have quickly eaten up all the constituency of the Taliban, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so everybody would have voted for them and, and the Taliban would have found that they don't have any vote. But how do you prove that the Taliban have no vote without actually bringing the Taliban in and then getting them to run in an election, right? Then, then you can actually claim that they, they don't uh, control them. So what happened after Bonn is as soon as you created this constitution, the Taliban got immediately the incentive to prove that they matter. Mm-hmm. How do you prove you, you matter? You prove you, you matter by taking over more and more and more villages and also by disrupting the normalcy that the new government wants to create. So you basically gave the Taliban every incentive and the Pakistanis every incentive to be spoilers.
1: Don't you also, though, then have that on the flip side of the argument, which is if you know you're going to potentially bring parties like the Taliban into negotiated settlements, If they indeed control sufficient territory to be necessary to be at the table, then you're providing a structural incentive for prior to negotiations as that's ramping up for them to increase violence, for them to increase their execution of territorial control. And so the sequencing is a bit different in terms of uh, when groups are ramping up, but the outcomes are somewhat similar in, in that you're generating the structural incentives for more control.
2: Oh, absolutely, I mean diplomacy is is difficult. It's more, it's much more difficult than when we say. Let's just talk to each other, right? Uh, it's like the case of Northern Ireland, where Senator, uh, you know, Cohen said that you know this this was, uh, you know, four hundreds of dark days until the four hundred first day. All of a sudden, there was a breakthrough. In you know, other you just cannot get it happening. You're right, but when when process starts. Everybody knows they're going to the table. Everybody thinks they need to get a better, bigger leverage than before. They need to puff up. They need to take over more territory. They need to show more force. Then there are also those who try to undermine the process. So, you know, when when the Oslo peace process happened between Arabs and Israelis, there was an assassination of a of an Israeli prime minister by his own people. And on the Palestinian side, there was an escalation of car bombings uh, uh, and, and bus bombings in Israel to spoil to spoil the process. And, and then the, the negotiations sometimes take years to happen and they become kind of like a chess game. In other words, you make a move, the other side makes a move and, 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 and it can be quite an involved process. The problem is that the, the bond peace process was not so much a negotiation with the enemy as it was, uh, as it was handed down peace deal by a victor, it was more like General MacArthur's constitution handed down to the Japanese. than it was about you know a, a two sides who have ended up at a stalemate agree to to a to a negotiated end. And nor is Afghanistan like those civil wars you mentioned before the Cold War, where easily one side uh, triumphs over over the other. I mean, if I were to envision which side really in a in a battle without outside intervention, would win, it's the Taliban. So one missed opportunity was obviously
0: right at the beginning, mm-hmm. during the Bonn Agreement. A second might have been when the US committed to a massive ramping up of troops as all the capabilities switched from Iraq towards Afghanistan. And at that point, I think there did become a, res- a recognition, at least, that Pakistan was central to solving the war. You were part of that, uh, working under Richard Holbrook and the AFPAC creation, as it was known. Um, and at that time, I think Pakistan was central to the war in multiple respects. One, because uh, Al-Qaeda had fled and were based out of the, the borderland there. Secondly, the Afghan Taliban leadership was in Quetta and and Pakistan essentially sheltered and supported the Afghan Taliban. And thirdly, Pakistan was critical because that's how troops were supplied into uh, into Afghanistan. Now, if we think about how to actually elicit the cooperation of pakistan in a deeper way than they did because as you know they basically cooperated to some extent on al qaeda but much less so and not at all in relation to the afghan taliban how do you actually elicit that deep cooperation and and what are the the missteps you think we made in in doing that
2: well i think you know you 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 won't get you won't get pakistan's full cooperation in afghanistan uh, to the extent that Let's say U.S. and Europe would, would have wanted without actually addressing directly what are Pakistan's worries about Afghanistan and what are its strategic objectives in Afghanistan. You can't just be talking to them about what matters to you and not what matters to them. I don't think there's ever a case where an American leader actually asked the Pakistanis mm-hmm. or tried to really get it out of them. But was it even helpful at that time to hyphenate Pakistan with Afghanistan?
0: Because I can remember talking to some interlocutors in Pakistan. They said, we don't want to be, don't want to be hyphenated next to that, that place. We're you know, an emerging
2: power. Well, that's absolutely right. So, so in terms of war planning in the US, it was a single battle, a theater of conflict. So, so in that sense, it made sense. And under the Bush administration, even in the White House, Afghanistan had been under a, under a war bureau with Iraq and Pakistan had been under South Asia bureau with India and the two people are in two different buildings and don't even talk to each other so there was absolutely no coordination so they thought that actually they were creating greater sort of strategic harmony and operational uh, you know harmony in in putting these in, in the same bureau but the reality of it was that our Pakistan strategy was always driven by our our, our Afghanistan uh, Priority. So we were willing to put $200 billion into Afghanistan, which was kind of at that point like pouring water into sand. But we weren't willing to put $10 billion into Pakistan. I think if you'd reversed this formula, the war would have ended. Right, right in that. And that, and then, you know, uh, uh, if
0: you were But are you saying then that's because my assumption was that if you were going to get a deal with Pakistan, um, what wouldn't work was certainly what we're trying now, which is coercive diplomacy, a very transactional approach where we take away aid. But nor would simply recognising that uh, Pakistan has a role in the future of Afghanistan and that we're going to involve the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistan in the future of that country. It felt like you needed much more than that to bring Pakistan to the table, such as a promise even of a uh, civil nuclear deal along the lines that Bush gave India, or uh, a vast, vast increase in aid or uh, trade agreements, those kind of things that recognize the economic uh, needs of Pakistan in its own right, rather than just as a means to an end in Afghanistan.
2: There, there definitely is a lot that would have had to go on the table. So the question, Ravi, it's a very good question. It's a question I think that that, uh, that American foreign policymakers should have asked themselves and never did. First of all, how important is the ending war in Afghanistan to you? Right? How important is it? Uh, is it important to to the tune of $300, $400 billion? If that's the case, how much of that should you put just in Afghanistan itself? If you really believe, as nowadays we're hearing, that the key to ending the Afghan war is in Pakistan, why do we keep spending money in Afghanistan, right? So if we come back and say, no, this war is not worth a lot of money, right? We're willing, uh, you know, we're not willing to put this much in Pakistan. Then you've answered your own question. Or you come back and say, no, this war is important. Now, Pakistan's not going to get everything it has on the table. We're not going to go interfering Kashmir on their behalf or a civil nuclear deal is off the table, but maybe a trade deal might be on the table, right? It might be worth our while if we really, really claim that terrorism is the, is the scourge of our day and it's the most important foreign policy issue. It is that big a deal. Isn't it maybe a wise idea to, to have a textile deal with Pakistan? I mean, what's the cost of that textile deal? Maybe that money you're pouring into Afghanistan you should give it to southern states of the United States that that would be hurt by the textile deal, and get the textile deal, or that you know the in terms of Pakistan being involved in the future Afghanistan, it always will be. Uh, there's no way of keeping them out because their clients in the end are. Whenever you get a deal, the Taliban are going to run for office. It's kind of like Shiites in Iraq. I mean, you can't you can't expel the population and bring a whole different population in. So there's some things we could have, maybe we would have done, some things we wouldn't have done, but we never started from the position of what does it take to change Pakistan fundamentally? So we 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 limited ourselves to specific day-to-day things we wanted from Pakistan.
1: So the countervailing argument, though, mm. would be that actually, we've been using aid to induce a behavior change in Pakistan for many years. I think in the post-9-11 years, we allocated around $20 billion in foreign aid to Pakistan. And and they remain, I think, the sixth highest recipient of aid um, after Afghanistan, Israel, Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan. And just to give a, a sense of comparison, right, our, our 2017 foreign assistance budget is about $42.5 billion um, per year. So, Comparatively, Pakistan is actually receiving quite a bit of aid um, with the goal of having them be more of a cooperative ally. And so, you know, I think one question is, wasn't that enough? And, you know, the countervailing kind of question being, how much is enough, right? Like, how much aid are we actually going to allocate to induce this type of cooperation? Does it actually then even serve its transactional purposes of doing this? Or is aid not actually going to even reach those ends?
2: majority of the aid we give to Pakistan is military aid and uh and and most of it is really subsidy to american industry uh so you know when you when you you tell them they can buy F16s it's also the american manufacturer that essentially is getting that aid so the so it's basically it doesn't really go to pakistani people i mean i remember uh, in these conversations one time uh pakistan's foreign minister told uh, richard Holbrook, that look, if you really think your aid is gonna have an impact in Pakistan, uh, number one is that from every dollar you give in aid, only 10 cents makes it to Pakistan, 90 cents is spent within Washington to all of the consulting firms, et cetera, and and and, and, and people who take the money. All of it is, majority of it is to the military. I cannot sh- point to any, and in that, the money that even comes in is not money we actually care about, like you on your own greater wisdom decide that you're going to give money to primary schools in Balochistan nobody ever ever asked the pakistan government whether that's a priority or not so you could say that you know the in fact the way we gave aid gave the pakistan military more of a reason to keep the game going because they're going to get these these you know weapons only if we have a reason to give it to them the idea that for instance Hallbrook had was actually to change the whole logic of the of the aid more long-term aid, more civilian aid, more aid into the Pakistani economy, but also things like uh, removing tariffs on certain Pakistani goods strategically would would actually weave Pakistani economy much more into the US economy and and generally using aid uh, less transactionally and more strategically to say that in the longer run we have an interest in the country. Now, it's not... So so let's imagine mm -mm. that... um, you'd managed to convince people that we need to do a big deal with
0: Pakistan Mm. with a free trade agreement, uh, recognition of Pakistan's involvement in the future of Afghanistan, uh, a large aid package that's long-term in its commitment much bigger than the amount Mm. on the table for civilian aid. It feels like there are a few challenges that Mm. would would make that still not work. One is trust. Why on earth would the Pakistanis trust that this is not going to be a one-off or a a very short-term thing? We could have a a Donald Trump turning up and rip it all up. Mm. And therefore, they would probably still hedge their bets and not give up their proxy actors in Afghanistan or elsewhere. Um, The second concern I think that uh, I would have would be, what would be the impact on Iran and others? Wouldn't they say, hang on a minute, you can't go and empower uh, that actor, what about us? In the same way that you've seen the uh, fallout from the Iran nuclear deal causing a lot of backlash with Saudi and others. So... How would you have actually squared that difficult game of chess?
2: Well, in the, in the, a uh, uh, couple of things. One is that there are, there are diplomatic approaches that fail. I mean, nobody uh, says that, you know, you necessarily are going to succeed. Look, the Oslo peace process was successful for 10 years until it completely failed, right? So, uh, the question, so the question is could we have tried it, right? Uh, th- so did, he- did the particular strategy that followed the bond, the bond agreement of, of, of focusing on nation building in Afghanistan, factoring out the Pakistan factor, and pouring hundreds of billions of dollars was the right strategy. Now that looks right to have been a bad strategy and failed, but could have we could have tried something else? And the only other thing would have been uh, to actually have created a, a situation in which all of Afro- Pakistan's neighbors would have had a vested interest in, in in the outcome in Afghanistan, would not have been afraid of a united centralized Afghanistan. Maybe we would have got there, maybe we would not. Thirdly, I think you raise a very important point, is that the the, the way we approach these conflicts, with Syria, uh, Afghanistan, others, that we want to parachute in. We have a short timeline, right? By but we arrive at one and by three, we need to be out and a bedtime. So this doesn't work because as one time Iranian deputy foreign minister said about US and Iraq, he said, United States would always leave Iraq. Iran has to live next to Iraq for the rest rest of its life. We will always care more about Iraq than you will, right? So, so Pax- is that usual cliche that people mention, which is, uh,
0: Afghans say, "You have all the watches, but we have all the time." We
2: have all the time. So, 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 and then if we if we spur, then we're short of breath, and we pant, and you know, then then we abandon and leave. You know, Pakistan would say, let's just wait for them to go. But we don't see any kind of a commitment to Afghanistan. We don't see a commitment to ourselves. So partly what you're putting your finger on it is that some of the issues that we're dealing, and Afghanistan is a good case, are complicated. They require patience. They require economic costs. They require also willingness to put in a 10-year plan, 15-year plan and so say, we're not going to leave. We're committed to long run here. And you're not going to out outpace us, Right. And coming with a strategy that's sustainable for a longer period of time, uh, we didn't do that. But I think the Trump example you raised is extremely important because you would say a country like Mexico invested its geostrategy in NAFTA, mm-hmm. right? So NAFTA is an example. I remember when we used to talk about this, uh, like uh, these free trade deals that brought, that changed countries as profiles uh, and brought them into Europe, European Union or into um, into, in the case of NAFTA. Now, if after 20, 30 years, you end up with a president who says, well, look, I'm not going to abide by this. I think it gives everybody around, it's going to make the job of even what I told you we all should have done in Pakistan, is going to make it now much more difficult. Because even if you put trade deals in front of people, they're not going to trust that 10 years from now, you're not going to have a populist re- leader come and uh, uh, rip it up.
0: We're going to take a quick break. Back with Valley Nazar soon.
1: Anna Marie Cox, host of With Friends Like These. It's a show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. I have conversations with people across the political and cultural spectrums about what they believe and why. This isn't another show where a liberal or conservative either yell at each other or try to find common ground. This is about learning to see through someone else's eyes. With Friends Like These comes out every Friday. Hope you follow along and you leave feeling inspired to listen to those around you.
0: To the conversation with Mali Nazo.
1: This is, I mean, this is one of, I think, the ways in which the long-term implications of the Trump administration get uh, underestimated in certain ways, which is uh, he is in large part breaking deals that we thought would endure for generations, and it's going to reduce the political space to generate these types of agreements longer term. But then what's actually happening right now geopolitically is a reduction in any commitments that we make that's longer term than one electoral cycle, when I think what you're arguing is that, you know, the commitments we need to be making are on the 10, 15, 25 year time horizon. And so if the if the nuance and sophistication need to come around sequencing long-term commitments and credibility around both of those pieces, I think the space for that is, is reducing right now in a way that's ultimately going to reduce the foreign policy tools available to actually end, uh, end settlements. And I'm curious as to whether how you think about what the strategic implications are for what other levers are therefore going to become more comparatively valuable.
2: Well you know in settling in settling wars, particularly ones we that we parachute in and and, and want to fix I mean the, 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 you you either have to show countries that you have the will and capability to militarily finish these conflicts. We failed in that in Vietnam uh, we failed that in uh, in Afghanistan, we failed that in Iraq, right? uh so so th- those are powerful lessons so so for country- for, for whether you 're the Taliban or other insurgent groups, you may come to the conclusion that that look uh, the the u s only is not is not willing to commit to long term military engagement and if you can survive in the battlefield long enough the u s will leave so so the question of us ending the wars militarily is not compelling to all protagonists right and the other side is that if you're going to negotiate a peace would countries really trust their future and their strategic well-being to you let's take the case of pakistan and at least the current leadership in pakistan they look at next to them is india their big rival is getting richer bigger more powerful they would see a government in afghanistan that's going to be allied with india if they're they, they, they let this happen, they could they would see themselves as an absolute loser. So either they have to throw the towel in and say, fine, we agree to this uh, and we're going to be a different place or they're going to resist this altogether. So, you know, if the U.S. comes in and negotiates a deal with Afghanistan, it has to be acceptable to all these people, but the U.S. also has to like, give a guarantee that I'm going to stand behind this deal. So now the U.S. is actually... Not only have NAFTA is put into question its commitment to NATO under Trump, it's put its commitment to protecting Korea and Japan into question. If you're sitting in Pakistan now and you're looking at this, you're not going to trust uh, what the US uh, may promise. Yeah, the usual approach to tackling these trust and commitment issues is to create institutions
0: like NATO and, That's right. and EU. And, and when those are crumbling, you do start to worry what's what to do? Can I just take you back though to this question about trust and mm-hmm. Pakistan? So if you put out put out that big offer and it's still not getting traction, one way of actually hopefully getting engagement is to highlight the gap between the positive deal versus the consequences mm-hmm. of doing nothing. And I think we talked about this many, many years ago, and you could imagine saying to the Pakistanis that there is another path that is less attractive, which involves uh, the US and the UK basically using Iranian and Indian proxies to balance Pashtun power in the South. And and that would be the implicit Mm -hmm. threat of not going for the deal. The question I'm interested in is how do you, in diplomacy, combine a certain degree of threat while building trust? Because it feels essential that you do need that implicit threat to be able to sometimes create the incentives for actors to cooperate.
2: No, absolutely. There has to be threat of uh, violence. I mean, you know, in the case of Vietnam, Henry Kissinger tried to use that in massive aerial bombardment of North Korea and and, and Cambodia, fully well knowing that that's not going to win the war, but it. But he hoped that it would bring the North Vietnamese to serious negotiations in in uh, in, in Paris, and eventually it did. But you know, we're still reeling from the of the war. In Bosnia, for instance, the U.S. armed the Bosnians and the Croats, so the tide of the war began to turn against the Serbs. And towards the end, actually, the problem was not bringing the Serbs to the table, is that the Croats and Bosnians thought they're winning. They didn't want to come to the table. And uh, and so so very clearly we used, and then later on in the case of Kosovo, the U.S. resorted to aerial bombardment of uh, Belgrade and, 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 and the Serbian military in order to force Serbia to come uh, to the negotiating table. So yes, you have to do that. You have to basically uh, raise the cost of intransigence. But, but the diplomatic offers you put on the table also have to be real. So the trust building, uh, I mean, there are, there are sets of things in, in diplomacy. That, they're called confidence building measures, or nowadays there's an acronym for it, CBMs. So you have to identify things that you agree on and you deliver. I mean, in many cases, people say prisoner swap. So, if you actually arrived at a prisoner swap agreement with uh, with the Taliban, that that because it's a very simple deal, it's very transactional. If both sides keep their keep their word, at least they know they can they can talk and cut a deal. Mm-hmm. And then from that, you may go to something higher, like a uh, you know safe zone, uh, safe passage area, and then you 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 can you can keep going up. So, in dealing with a country too, once you sort of arrive and say, "Okay, I'm 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 willing to ne- start negotiations," let's say on a ta- on a tariff deal, but you know I'm also willing to uh, openly uh, bombard you know Taliban positions uh, in in this area, or I'm going to publicly shame you in the press doing this while 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 we do that. So so that's where actually diplomacy becomes a a, a very uh, a, a very sort of engaged game, but but the, but the more important picture is that you have to put in the t- on the table for yourself and the other side a vision of where you're going, right? They have to first first of all agree to that. So you, you would say, look, I'm looking at a grand peace deal in which your issues will also be addressed. Now, if you come in, these are the list of benefits to you, and we can negotiate about that. But if you don't come in, this is the list of pain that will come your way. And how would
0: that have played out actually in bringing peace to Afghanistan? So if we'd have actually built up the confidence with Pakistan and essentially got them to play ball, how would the end game have actually happened in terms of negotiations? And what kind of changes would have been required to enable that to happen? For instance, would you have had to have a new constitution that decentralised power in Afghanistan so that we can actually divvy up a share of power more evenly?
2: I, I think so. I think actually that would have been required because that, that basically, I, I think the Pakistanis are very are very sensitive to that if Southern Afghanistan is very tightly controlled by Kabul, that then it will become a base of operations for for India. And I remember years ago, a Pakistani three-star general said, our objective is not to confront Indian divisions on two borders. So a week even though violent terrorists ridden in Afghanistan is preferable to a powerful centralized but uh, militarily capable Afghan territory, let's say, that's posed against them. So I'm sure that the Pakistanis would have insisted not on a direct uh, appointment of governors in southern Afghanistan, but something close to it, which is that if this area is controlled essentially by pro Pakistan political parties, let's say, uh, that then, you know, uh, uh, we, we would. We would, be, we would feel that that area sort of is under our, our tacit control.
1: So I want to take a step back and uh, um, pick up on uh, a question or a comment that you had started with was that most of our policymakers are not scholars who get sent to libraries. Uh, but that's actually exactly what you were. You mm-hmm. had come out as a scholar and then moved over to the State Department to work under Richard Holbrook in... Uh, when he was a special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, And I would love to get your reflections on what the policymaking process looked like from your vantage point, particularly coming in as an outsider and a scholar who wasn't necessarily um, used to processes like this.
2: So it was difficult. I mean, uh, uh, academia ultimately looks at the trees, but but really makes much more sense of the forest and and particularly my background and a few other academics who were brought in by Holbrook had a much better sense of history uh, that Afghanistan and Pakistan were not born in 2001 a sort of generic twins that don't get along there's there's a, there's a long history between them and, and and there's historical memory there uh Holbrook was very attuned to this uh, but he was also one piece of a broader policy making puzzle. And uh so so obviously the learning curve for, for all, all, all of us academics in government was that was that government is driven much more by by daily inbox issues, which is much more focused on the tree in front of you. You could spend hours uh back and forth on a single statement, banal statement that's going to be put out about a banal event that happened. But every bureau has to move the comma and and add add here and add there, and that uh, and also that a lot of even the bigger issues are day to day basis. There's a bombing here. There's a need for military troops there, or there's certain policy on corruption that has to be put out. And and you could get buried if you would in management of daily crisis. And I think the big challenge is how do you address those trees, but have a sense of a broader forest that that you're going to. I think the the people in the diplomacy side are more likely to think this way, and there have been people in the history of American foreign policy who had this broad historical perspective. I think Kissinger, for instance, was one who had a very clear sense of you know even how European peace held together and 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 where where he 's taking things. I think Brzezinski was another one who had a you know sort of a broad strategic vision and I, and Holbrook, who I work with was was a deep historian. I mean, he started his mission by trying to read every single book he could get his hands on in Afghanistan, Pakistan. The first group of people he met were all academics. But there's another part of the US government, which is the military, which in this war uh, from Iraq to Afghanistan basically became the dominant voice in decision-making, right? And it's Uh, a very
0: common problem in most countries that the military... Uh, it's it's dominate a danger the conversation, yeah. and uh, I mean, one yeah. concern I've got is every single actor tends to just focus on the lever that they can play. So diplomats say let's talk, uh, aid ministries say let's give money for
2: economic re- reconstruction and governance, and the military say more troops. But there is there is a balance. You see, that balance is the delicate part. If you went to Bosnia, Holbrook was in charge, and General Wesley Clark basically was his, was there to see how he can help Holbrook. When we arrive in Afghanistan. It is the generals that are in charge, and Holbrook is standing on the side to see how he can help the generals. Mm-hmm. So, And and then there's a p- couple of issues that actually have become even worse under the Trump administration, which is when you sit around this situation room in the White House, under Obama at least, which is my experience, the civilian were s- significantly outnumbered by by military people. And the CIA, which I would put in the same category. So you had one State Department, and then Pentagon, of course, had a civilian, but he spoke for the military. Then you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you have commander of CENTCOM, you have a CIA, you have Directorate of Intelligence, you have in-house terrorism expert, John Brennan. So you added all of these in terms of opinion, there, you know, there, there's not a there's not a balance. And also the level of power essentially was really given to the generals to actually decide the way this war is going. So the question of, no, we're not going to talk to the Taliban, we're going to this win this war on the ground, I'm saying as a, as a sort of a fundamental assumption is a military assumption. Know,
1: right. it's, it's interesting, though, right, because you have, you know, Obama elected, um, coming off the coattails of, uh, you know, disenchantment with what's going on in our foreign mm-hmm. intervention in our military theaters. And he comes in in part based on commitments to, uh, you know, bring troops home, to stop the war. And what you're kind of saying is that the political economy of the organizational process and the policy-breaking process actually just replicates itself from before, that the military continues to gain a hold. And so I'm curious as, you know—
2: well, Why in fra- this in a, happens, right? But in a, a, a fraught relationship with the president, you know, the, I I think it's largely domestic politics. I think I think the calculation was that he's young, he's a Democrat, he didn't serve in a war, and it's extremely dangerous for him to stand up to particularly generals who had come out out of Iraq as heroes of the Iraq War, right? So, so this is really about domestic policy. It's not about just strategic logic there, because we know where Obama's own strategic logic was. It showed itself in, in, in Syria, right? Where, where by, by the end, he basically was willing to say no, regardless of what the humanitarian cost was, right? But he wouldn't do that in Afghanistan because one bomb attack coming out of Afghanistan, and if he had not listened to the generals, then there was hell to be paid in midterm elections and re election Right. So uh I think it's a very persuasive argument. I think every single Democrat would have probably done the same. But but the way he went about it was essentially giving the military what they wanted, which is a uh which is dominance and, and, and implementing a, a a what they call the fully sourced counterinsurgency, which is nation building plus hundreds of thousands of troops on the ground, et cetera. But then he said, I would give you only a year to do it. Uh, which is the, which? Which I mean, the Pakistanis and Taliban also read these things, you know. Say, okay, this policy is good for a year. What was he thinking when he did that? Because it's kind of obvious, isn't it, that if you if you signal you're going
0: to leave before you've even done the surge, it's not going to have the leverage required, unless you actually believe that he thought he could still win the war with that surge.
2: Well, I, I'm not in his head. I can only I can only. Uh, um, you know, venture to think what he might have, how he might have calculated. One is that he really didn't believe that the surge would work, but basically gave enough rope to the military to hang itself by, although there are- That was was my assumption. But but the problem is that they can always say, well, we were only given a year. But at the same time, you know, you couldn't have sustained that campaign for 15, 20 years, right, Uh, at, at that cost, and then wait for it to fail at that point. So he 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 subscribed to their policy, he gave them the levers, he, he empowered them to drive the course of the war. So it's no question to me for the period that I was in. I don't know whether the Taliban would have ever come to the table, but the reality is that this was not also a priority, that, that you know, when Holbrook was pushing for, for for finding a negotiation with the Taliban, he was fought tooth and nail and shot down essentially by, by the military who wanted to win this on the battlefield.
1: I want to pull a strand that you said about Syria in just a second, because I think it gets to another way that wars end. But right before moving there, when you take a step back and reflect on your time in government, what do you think, in broad terms, individuals who are not at the policymaking table underestimate about what the inputs are, about what the constraints are, whether they're American political domestic mm-hmm. audience costs, like you're talking about, the challenge of interagency coordination? What do you... Uh, reflect on and think through is, is the one thing that people don't see as much as they should.
2: I think when we're outside, we constantly think about the US ought to do this or ought to do that, or it's very easy to sort of completely change ways and and, and do things very differently. But in reality, the US government is extremely complex and complicated. It's like trying to navigate through a slalom course with an aircraft carrier, right? It, it turns ever so slowly, it's very difficult, it's, it's extremely difficult process. Uh, inertia, uh, you know, uh, vested interest, uh, implementation issues are extremely complicated, and um, and and therefore, um, you know, drastic policy change can only happen once in a while, uh, like opening to China, and that's why these things become such a big historical uh, events. Uh, so the question is, how 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 can we you know move, move things around? The second thing I took away, and it, and it's a reflection on where we are in the United States today is that, the, is that the, job, the U.S. government is built on institutions, interlocking complicated institutions. Uh, now, it's not easy to unravel these interlockings, but these are manned by, by people, and there's a tremendous amount of value in each of these institutions, and that's what has kept our world and our foreign policy together. So when I look at the way in which sort of this is being hollowed out today, uh, that actually gives me a lot of worry Because the questions today is not about whether we actually can formulate and think through the right policy. The question is, can we implement absolutely anything if you don't even have those institutions working? What a perfect
1: moment to pick up on Syria then.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you said before that the essence of creating
0: order is either all-out victory or some sort of balance. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Now, what we're seeing now is a certain degree of dominance by Assad, Iranians and, and the Russians. Do you think that shake out that uh, settlement that is happening right now is going to be a stable arrangement? Or do you think that we're just at another inflection point when we're going to see Iran, Turkey, Saudis saying, hang on, we're not prepared to accept this. This is an unbalanced Middle East order.
2: It it, it is an unbalanced Middle East order. but, But the reality is those who want to challenge it have to have a sense of what is it that they're going to achieve, right? First of all, if you look at Syria today, the Arabs have been knocked out completely there are arabs on the ground in form of arab opposition groups but qatar saudi arabia etc those sort of gulf powers are no longer real uh, real players in syria jordan is there but sort of as a subsidiary of us military right so who are the one, the big decision makers in the fate of syria it's iran russia turkey and then this combination of israel and U.S. military capability. And I think the facts on the ground suggest that the war is coming towards an end. Assad has won all the parts of Syria that matter. It's shown tremendous ruthlessness in eradicating all the pockets that remain. There is no force on the ground that actually can undo this. The Turks are eliminating the Kurdish forces. The U.S. can hit at the revolutionary guards and drop bombs on Syrian bases, but the U.S., or Israel are not willing to put troops on the ground to actually, uh, you know, change the military calculus on the ground, and I don't see evidence that they are willing to put the skin in the game in terms of really standing up a credible, you know, Sunni force that's going to go against uh, these forces. So, in some ways, we can see what the fate of Syria is now. Now, the outcome still might be decided. In other words, Syria can still fracture between. Areas under Assad complete, and then areas under the Kurds and under non-Assad forces, or that the country could divide altogether. The, the people, the, there is a possibility of a negotiation also there as well. So, which is what the Russians are trying their hands on. They really are trying for a bond agreement. Let's put it that way, right? And it's kind of interesting that
0: essentially Russia, because of their military investments, are leveraging that to create
2: some sort of political deal, and the U.S. is basically standing aside. Well, the russians have two advantages uh, one is that you're right they did get involved we didn't get involved and and their involvement has been victorious despite all of the doubts that we said that they're going to crash and burn and thirdly is that they talk to everybody i mean you know israel's prime minister has been to moscow in the last 2 years seven times he talks with putin routinely iran's president revolutionary guard commanders you're on a shuttle flight back and forth to uh, to moscow even Saudis, UAE, Qatar, they all talk to Moscow, right? So the, so, the, so the Russians have a combination of military might and diplomatic access, and now they desire to finish this war, right? And that's why you're seeing all the diplomatic activities in Astana, in Sochi, with the Russians. The question is not whether there's gonna be a deal, the question is what's gonna be the final boundary line. That's what the fighting's gonna be about, right? Is it gonna be 10 kilometers this way or 10 kilometers that way? You know, when the Geneva talks happened ages ago, the question was whether uh, Assad should, the question with Assad has to go, there has to be a transitional government. That's not on the table anymore at Sochi. He's not going to go anywhere, mm-hmm. right? The question is whether he will control all of Syria or whether he will accept a, a constitution, as you said, with Afghanistan that would allow autonomy for certain Sunni-controlled uh, regions elsewhere uh, in, in the country. But... You know, the, the, the key is that the Russians are playing the same game that we've been talking. Initially, in order to sort of create the framework, they had to make sure Assad survives. They had to build the military capacity. Assad is putting tremendous amount of pressure now on the opposition in Idlib, in all of these sort of destruction just today. You know, they've been killing hundreds of civilians in savage bombardment. Not only that wins them territory, but that's also to convince the opposition to show up, quote-unquote, with the right attitude in Sochi, right? So that's military might, and the Russians are, are are watching this. The Iranians are watching this. That's what he's doing. So they're going to come to the table. The Israelis sort of have done bombings in, in Syria to prove that they also have military might. It's kind of like these big animals are sniffing each other. They're going to go to the table. They're trying to assert... The relative powers. In the end, I think there's there's going to be a deal in Syria. We're not going to like it. More than likely, it's going to be uh, decided by the Russians. It will hold if all the protagonists end up not in an ideal situation that they wanted, but a situation that they can live with and is, and is less costly to them than continuing the war. And when we bring it back to the human
0: impact... What do you think that means for the millions of refugees now, who are spread across Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, etc., Turkey?
2: I, I think that's a whole different dimension this conflict because I think, particularly out of Syria, we have now realized that the refugee issue is has has found a completely different geopolitical meaning. Yes, the human suffering, told the humanitarian relief's dimension of it is, is, is sort of unthinkable and is galling. But, but the refugees have now reached a scale that they are changing the geopolitical map of Europe and the United States. Uh, they, are, they could be potentially destabilizing to countries in the Middle East. I mean, the, the portion of the population in Jordan or Lebanon. So which tells us that it's more important to finish these wars quickly and and it's not because of terrorism that we should be in these in the business of finishing these wars and not starting them but it's it's the fact that you know previously refugee issues i would say that probably the world thought very badly about refugee issue but it was not it was a sort of a side issue it was a humanitarian human relief issue it was it was a, it was an acceptable collateral damage of these kinds of conflicts. I, I think we can no longer think of it that way. And I think we've passed the Rubicon, if you would, with these refugees. And to, the, to go to the theme of our conversation, I think it really draws the, the point that it's imperative to prevent these conflicts and end these wars and and create a situation where refugees can go back. And, and so we have to th- sort of think, and, and if total military victory is not possible, we have to take diplomacy much more seriously. Vali Nazar, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening.
0: Thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer for audio is Nishat Kowa,
1: And a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Taryn Turner, and Ben Moskowitz. Please drop us a line and tell us who you'd like to hear on this show. We would love to hear from you. Email us at displaced at rescue.org or drop by at rescue.org backslash displaced.
0: And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next week.